Hey, everybody. Now it's time to welcome Chief Dennis Rubin to the Tip of the Spear Leadership Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to talk about his 13 leadership points uh, from his book, It's Always About Leadership. We're going to talk about his uh, vast 35-year experience in the fire service and uh, things that have worked for him and some lessons that he's learned. So, Chief Rubin? How are you, sir? I am well. How are you? How's everything? Having an excellent day, and uh, really, uh, it, it's just been a, a, a great uh, opportunity to join you on the Tip of the Spear podcast. I've been following along with some of your programs, uh, absolutely outstanding. I know uh, Chief Lasky, I think, has been on a couple of times, and some other high-level fire service dignitaries, so thanks what you're doing to uh, be able to educate and help train our American fire service. I appreciate that. That's very, uh, it's very humbling. Uh, that's a very humbling uh, introduction. Thank you very much. I, I greatly appreciate that. And, you know, our goal here is to create a movement of strong, competent leaders. And, you know, I can't think of anyone better than yourself than to, uh, to join us today. So there may be some people out there who may or may not know who you are. Just could, if you could just give us a quick, uh, you know, just quick background of who you are, your experiences and, uh, you know, where you're at and what you're doing. I'm a, a very, very lucky person. I've had a chance to work for a couple of metropolitan fire departments. Uh, as I grew up, it was in Washington, D.C., and I lived very, very close to the firehouse in the area called Trinidad. That's Engine 10. And right after high school, I was lucky enough to get appointed there. Um, really had an incredible, incredible opportunity. Uh, later in life, I got called back to the department as the fire chief. I got to serve under Mayor Adrian Finty. Uh, from 2007 to 2011, and it was the highest honor of my life. I worked for a couple of other fire departments along the way, but without a doubt, the hometown fire department will always be the number one in my heart, and I was so proud and pleased to be a part of Engine 10. That was in the years when we did a lot of fire duty. Of course, they continue to do a lot of fire duty, and it's just an amazing place to be. So uh, that's a little bit about me. I'm currently doing some uh, work as a consultant I've got several major projects that I'm working on, including various training programs, working at the National Fire Academy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of work on, on the fourth book. I'm hoping to maybe get that published through Fire Engineering. So that'll come out and that'll probably be the swan song as in the very last one. So that's what I've been up to lately, Mike. And again, it's just an honor to, to join you today. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. You know, I, I pulled up some of your things, some of your articles, and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Fire Rescue One magazine. It looks like you have an ongoing series called Tip of the Spear. I did. It, it's uh, it's no longer ongoing. Um, they've made a lot of changes, and it's a great magazine, uh, no doubt. Uh, but the concept and the idea was probably similar to what you do, and that is the first in. The ability sure. to, yeah, arrive quickly, do the work that you need to do, uh, walk in, in on harm's side, in harm's way to get whatever work done to help whatever people and to protect our folks as best we can. And I'm sure you have the same philosophies. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, I, I just I really like the, the name of that uh, series. Tip of the Spear is a, is a very good one. And I say that, uh, you know, respectfully. It's, I, I like it. Um, you know, so, me as well, and I, I guess we both need to point out, that's a military phrase. And sure. again, it goes back, yes, sir, a long, long way. And it talks about the soldiers that go into the eye of the storm. So God bless every service member 
uh, in our nation that protects us every single day can never forget that. Um, and just simply remember the ones that are deployed, the ones that are out there fighting for us. And there's so many that are soldier firefighters, uh, soldier Marines, soldier sailors, et cetera. So God bless each and every one of them. No, I agree. Absolutely. They, um, they definitely deserve more respect than they get. And, you know, it's definitely something I feel that, uh, any civilian who's never who has not been part of the, the military is we're, we're truly indebted and greatly appreciate it. The tip of the spear, though, also is I believe a leadership style. I could be wrong about that part, but it should be one of the major ones. I know there's autocratic, um, transformational coaching, democratic, uh, affiliative, delegative. And I think I'm missing one of them. Um, laissez faire, I believe. Laissez faire, yeah. That, no, that sounds, yeah, yeah, laissez-faire. Yep, there it is right there. All right, so I want to shift. So you have a book called It's Always About Leadership. And um, inside that book, it has, I believe, 13 rules, I think you mentioned. It does. Each of the rules became a chapter in the book, Mike. Uh, and it's been pretty popular. I've been very lucky in two ways. Uh, a lot of books have gone out the door, and that's always nice to know. But there's also a parallel presentation that I do. I prefer a two-day, but a lot of folks have a one-day version of that. And we talk about those rules and begin to discuss how to apply them. Uh, it's not a leadership 101. It doesn't talk about the very basics. The expectation is that the folks that attend the room have been in the business for a while and, and might need a little guidance, might need a little direction, might need some discussion, if you will, to ensure that they're doing the job correctly, that they're leading in a way that's appropriate. And also, too, a lot of effort went into making sure that our members didn't get in trouble. Okay. Uh, can you go through some of those points to us? Absolutely. Us? I was hoping you would ask. Um, sitting back in a, in, a, in a really important fire department to me, we had a, a handful of members, actually more than that, that, that seemingly would continue to get into trouble. The trouble at times would involve things like domestic violence. It was never coming to late to work. That didn't rise to my level. It was not rubbing the tire on the curb, but it was things that would get you in serious, serious issues. Uh, alcohol was another problem, uh, DUIs. Uh, and and uh, significant issues that, that, again, would bubble up and would have to go through the trial board process and be adjudicated. And, you know, when you look at all the time, all the trouble, all the effort that it takes to implement a lot of discipline, a lot of punishment, it's wasted resource. It's wasted on both ends. The, the member is going to uh, not be as effective or perhaps even have to leave the system. And then, of course, the time that is spent, the money that is spent to adjudicate a problem could have probably bought a fire truck during my uh, watch with Mayor Finty. But with that said, this presentation originally was from a collection of three by five cards. And I say presentation, I'm speaking to the book and was put together in a way to say, hey, here's the things that'll keep you out of trouble. Here's what we expect out of the leadership pieces. Uh, and uh, again, th that presentation was presented to all of our members in a four hour block each year that I was there. So uh, it was very important to me and as folks watched and listened and heard uh, about the way that I try to do business, the way that I want them to do business, the comment came up, gosh, why don't you put that into a textbook? Excuse me, when I sat down and put together the notes, 
Uh, I was very, very fortunate. Fire engineering was quick to pick it up. Uh, Bobby Holden, rest his soul, and their entire staff is incredible to work with. It's a great organization. I'm sure you're familiar with FDIC as well. They yes. let me present it there on many occasions, Mike. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, no, that sounds, uh, sounds like you got a lot of traction with it. Let me ask you this. So you're saying they started on three by five cards at a presentation of four hour block, four hour block. So you're saying that you, the chief went into the Academy or wherever it is that you, you did this presentation. You yourself went and did this presentation to talk about these things with the people that you work for work with. As many times as I could, I would certainly tell you that uh, any uh, officer level member probably got tired of seeing my face, but I tried to go in as low into the organization as I could. Um, at a minimum, as these presentations were being made, we also had a pledge to ask members to voluntarily sign it to uh, not get themselves in trouble or cause organizational issues. And I either opened those presentations up, as in all of them, or I closed them one or the other. Uh, our training school is a little distance from where headquarters was. We once were on Vermont Avenue, and you probably know Blue Plains is the home of the D.C. Fire NEMS Training Academy, but I did make all of those at least an appearance. The officer ones, I would dare say I was the guy that they'd sit in the front row and uh, uh, provided the, the insight and, and the, the uh, uh, material of presentation. I, I start off with what I think is one of the important ones, and all 13 are critical, none are in any spe specific order. But the first one, and I know this is going to sound pretty simple, but you got to show up, Mike. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I learned that particular behavior, uh, that particular leadership trait in a very ominous way. I, I received a message when I worked in Atlanta, and it told me that I needed to be at a meeting with the mayor and the cabinet officers, that's the department heads in most places, at the Georgia Aquarium. And, uh, you know, a, a cabinet meeting, uh, many people were going to be there. Uh, the place was under construction. And honestly, I felt like I didn't need to go. I, I'd been to that uh, facility so many, many times. Mayor Franklin, who's who I work for in Atlanta, she was a wonderful person and would regularly take the group on tours of facilities like the aquarium that was either under construction or operational Coca-Cola headquarters. The High Museum would be examples. And I just felt like I didn't need to go. But as the story would be told, I went back and forth with my aide. And he said, you know, why don't we do this? Just let me drop you off, say hello to the mayor, get to, get your roll call list checked off, meet me on the side door and we'll be back to the office in no time and you can get back to your paperwork. Well, I took him up on that and thank goodness I did. When I got there, there was no other cabinet members. There were, and there, there's about 30 or so in the, in the city of Atlanta. And I waited a little while when I was by myself. Of course, Bill, the driver had pulled around to the side of the building and finally, here comes a couple of police cars. The mayor in a major metropolitan city usually has a small entourage. There was uh, two cars that would come ahead and they would be looking for problems and safety and, you know, all the things that, that are necessary to keep a, a mayor of a major community safe. And then they told me about five minutes, the mayor would show up and lo and behold, she did. Uh, as she arrived, we hugged and talked for a minute or two. And I'm still wondering, Mike, where are the cabinet members? Oh, right. Uh, yeah, and, and that nobody else showed up. So we walked into the building. There was a gentleman that met her. He was about uh, six foot seven, six foot eight, a little bit older gentleman. And I would learn that that was Bernie Marcus. 
Bernie Marcus is the owner of Home Depot and also was the owner of the aquarium. When we went to the top floor, there were folks there waiting in this incredible building was under construction, but the conference room was done. And there was about seven, I'm going to describe them as panels that had detailed information on every one. And it talked about all the necessary temporary certificate of occupants uh, permits that would be needed for this place to open. And I began to realize this meeting was called for me. This meeting was for the fire department to understand how this building is going to come alive. It is the second uh, um, uh, highest attraction, uh, with the exception of Disney, in the entire 13 southeastern states. And I almost blew it. And I think about that one often because I wish the note would have said you have a meeting with the mayor, uh, but it didn't. It said the cabinet. And I almost blew it off. And I always go back to that thinking, I'm so glad that day that I showed up. I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't have been able to finish my term in Atlanta uh, or go to Washington, D.C., because I'm pretty sure I'd have been what would be called summarily fired by not following that rule. Oh, man. Uh, well, that, that's quite the example. I, um, geez. You know, it definitely sounds like you made the right decision. And I think a lot of that has to do with your experience and just knowing, um, knowing your leadership roles. I think, you know, something I want to touch on, though, you brought up um, when you were the chief, they had stuff that came up to you like, you know, big picture stuff or, you know, big issues like DUIs and those kind of things. And I, and I think there's something to be said about having problems and situations being handled at the lowest level. Um, I, I would say you've knocked it out of the park. The, the way I would describe discipline is that discipline has got to do the most good for the department. What I mean by that is the department cannot continue to, to uh, log DUIs on members. It should do sure. the least harm to the member, the least harm possible to the member. And remember, when you get a DUI and you've beat up your spouse and you're in the jail for two or three days, you're likely going to get fired. You've outperformed the ability for anybody to give you help. And then you said it perfectly at the lowest level that it can be handled. Um, you know, when I worked in Washington, D.C., we had 2,400 members. And although I would initial any kind of uh, action like a, like a written reprimand, uh, which there'd be a couple every day, to be honest, but things like coming to work late, um, uh, uh, not reporting in time to be at lineup, those kinds of things I initialed and didn't even pay attention to, they would resolve themselves. Uh, but the bigger pictures, obviously, were the ones that we were trying to avoid. I would dare say if, if there's any officers out there listening that enjoy delivering punishment, they're in the wrong business. They should become correction officers. There are so many uh, capabilities of working in a jail setting uh, out there if people are interested. But my goal was to get people away from trouble, save that resource, save that time, and honestly, save that stress on the good old chief. Um, it's never fun to have to give bad news to anybody uh, about an employment issue uh, and to find uh, someone in a situation where they've got to be separated from service. That's a bad day at work, Mike. Sure. And, you know, you mentioned something earlier. Well, the, I mean, first and foremost, it should always be people before paper. So I think instead of running around and immediately hammering people with paperwork and putting people on charges and things like that, I think there is always a line that you draw. Like, you know, there, 
once you put me to this point and I have to put you in, I have to put paperwork on you. It's your fault, not mine. As the officer, it's your fault, not mine. You are, they're your actions. It's your um, situation that put me here. You have no one to blame but yourself. I think there does come a point, though, where you have to do that. But I guess what I wanted to ask you was you went out of your way to, it's the best that you can, as you said, um, do these presentations where you felt like some of, the, some of the officers were, you know, and you said this jokingly, sick of seeing you. But do you think a lot of that had any translation in the knowing in, into your presence? Your presence being there continuously empowered people underneath your command from the I, I, top think down. I think it does. I think it does, and I'm not looking for a pat on the back. But no, 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 no. I've no. always been the the person, and you know, probably to a fault that has been actively engaged. You're sort of hitting on two of the leadership elements um, that I like what? to talk about. Yeah, yeah. And, I just wanted to let me let me just finish just real just real real quick because I don't want to forget course, the point. Of course. So, do you think, big picture wise, with you being continuously present? You being transparent, you being boots on the ground with the guys and girls that are in the field doing the work every day, by them seeing you all the time or seeing you consistently, you communicating regularly with a structured plan of, you know, I know you said to call you Rube, but I am Chief Ruben. These are my expectations. This is the leadership stuff that I want my officers to know. Do you think by seeing that all the time, that will empower the lower level, um, lower level leadership, your, your street supervisors, your, your uh, station supervisors, that'll empower them to push and, and, and um, you know, carry out the mission of the fire service and your expectations easier because they know exactly what you expect. You're going to have their, you're going to support them no matter what decision that they make and that you're going to uh, empower them to do their job. Do you think any of that has any translation with, exactly how you're putting yourself out there uh, present in the field? It does. And, and you know, there's two sides to that story. Um, and, and again, you, you, you set it up absolutely perfectly. The, the first part that I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about is you got to hire the right people first before you can protect them. Does that make any sense at all? A hundred percent. I completely understand so, what you're saying. So, um, when we take a look at a new hire or potential new hire, we got to remember that person's going to be around 30, 35 years, that they're going to have access to uh, things that most people in society will never have. For instance, a paramedic can cut a, the clothes off of a 16 year old child or a firefighter is going to enter a building today without a search warrant. And I could go on for quite a bit. So the standards got to be set pretty high. I, I steal a Gordon Graham. Gordon Graham is probably the, the most well-known lecturer and author uh, in public safety, both uh, fire department as well as police. And he would say, never hire idiots, never hire thugs. And I took that just a step further with his permission. He's a pretty good friend. And I would also say, do not hire military misfits. A military misfit, of course, would be one that received a, a discharge less than honorable or a dis, uh, dishonorable discharge. I've had one person in my lifetime of making uh, probably a hundred presentations be upset thinking that I was describing the military as that. The military is my highest heroes and the highest benchmark of, of goodness in America. But sure. they also have people that, that uh, are not quite 
capable folks. If you can't make it in the military, you can't make it in the fire department. If you're a thug, you're not going to make it in the fire department. And if you're an idiot and Gordon Graham would go on to say, Mike, that if you hire an idiot, if you hire a thug, Rube's going to add, if you hire a military misfit, they will never let you down. What do you kind, mean by that? Kind of get what Gordon Graham was saying. They're going to continue to be what? Underperforming. They're going to be idiots and thugs and the other misfits. things that you described. And misfits that you described. Yeah. Yep. Well, yep. I, I, so, so that's the first part of it. Now, if you are dealing with some members in the organization that light up those, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, areas that, that were hired by, by an inappropriate process, um, man, that, that's going to cause you problems. So don't think that sprinkling pixie dust is going to fix related problems. You know, it, it starts again in, in recruitment, selection, hiring and that. I think the other side of it is, uh, I, I, again, I made a little diagram here. The other half of what you described is I, I think the chief at all levels, the uh, captains at all ranks and lieutenants, that probably sounded silly, the officers probably need to be curious and probably need to show up. Um, I'm going to add a military phrase. I, I like always being on the side of danger is how the military describes that. But when you show up all the time, people sometimes don't like that as much as you wish they would. So when I first came to Washington, back home to Washington, rather, it was like, are you going to run for mayor? And that was because the, the first thing I like to do instead of micromanage is to be a cheerleader. And again, that's the next rule, which is lead from the front. And when you're a cheerleader, um, things are going well, it's my responsibility to get there to say, hey, that was a long, dark hallway that led to a basement that was about 15, 1700 degrees. And you guys kicked butt today. I couldn't be any prouder, any happier. You've saved human life, you've protected property. So the cheerleader was always fun. And it was always something that I really enjoyed doing. Not often, and especially in Washington, although there was one time that I sometimes have got to be part of the team. I've got to become a helper. We had a very large building uh, off of Columbia Road that was probably one of the largest uh, fires because eventually it was going to get into a church as well. And it went to eight alarms, which I've looked in our, our record books and couldn't find anything close to that. But ultimately, there was an exposure building. And when I asked for help to get the exposure covered, um, again, I'm, I'm getting ready to check in with command, and I, I saw the assistant chief, who was an amazing person, and he looked at me and he said, you know, we've got four maydays. I've got to clear the maydays. Why don't you handle the exposure? Well, you know, I, I got a couple of engines in a ladder truck, and we stopped it from jumping to the next building. So, again, uh, cheerleader first, team member second. Third is a hot coach, Mike. Have you ever heard of that term? Hot coach? Hot coach. And not. just just for your listeners' uh, pleasure, that would not be you in a speedo. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Thank you so for clarifying, because I'm sure a lot of them immediately thought that. Well, the hot coach is the person. Uh, first of all, hot meaning that the event is occurring. The hot coach is the person that comes up and gives guidance and help very gently, but very firmly. Uh, I, I know that sounds like a dichotomy, but it will make sense here in a second. 
and watches the the younger person be successful. Um, I worked as a battalion chief in training for about eight years, and and I, I loved it, but I always wanted to be on the street. I was born to be on the street. I love being on the street. Uh, my, 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 my goal was to finish first in my recruit class, which I did, so I could get my pick, and I went to Engine 10, the busiest, at least at the time in the city. I think it still is. Well, with this hot coach, uh, about the second week of being out on the, the, the street, had a really good house fire, heavy fire on the first floor, extending to the second. Two people had to be rescued. Um, as they're coming out of the building, both with minor burns. When I say rescued, I guess actually guided out and treated. So I had uh, asked for the working fire dispatch. I had called for the utilities. I had made sure there was a hose line knocking the fire down. I gave the, the benchmark of water on the fire. I guided a, a second hose line above. I'd asked already to take care of the utilities. We were working on checking extension. You know, and I, I went down my checklist and, and in those days there wasn't anything written down. Man, I felt good. Sure. And then the shift commander walked up, tapped me on the shoulder, looked me in the eye and he said, Rube, do you have a primary search completed? And I, I went from feeling 10 foot tall, Mike, to about two inches. And I realized we're there for one reason and that is to conduct a primary and secondary search first and foremost. I grabbed the microphone. I happened to have a ladder truck available. The heavy rescues hadn't gotten there yet. So I sent one to one floor, one to the other. It looked seamless and smooth. That shift commander, he could have done so many things. He could have taken over. He could have uh, done it by radio. And, and, and I, I, my, my record would have been scorned forever. And you know, he didn't. And I've pointed it out. Uh, he's an old guy and I'm an old guy. So I see him every now and then. And I thank him profusely. Uh, 20 years later, but boy, he handled it perfectly. And I'm going to say this, and, and I don't often try to get myself any accolades, but at least for the next six month, months, who do you think was the best chief ensuring a primary and a secondary search was completed? Yeah. Sure. So again, he handled it so well. It was so dignified. And again, it, it, it could have been painful, but it wasn't. And then the very last one, and when I say this, I know I relate it to operations, but it's the same in administrative issues, is that if everything is failing, it cannot be salvaged. If it's going to heck in a handbasket, uh, if nobody's paying attention, nobody's doing a job, the very last straw would be to take over. So when you're present and you're there as the cheerleader, people absolutely love that. And so do you because things are going well. When you're there and you become a helper, when it's absolutely positively necessary, my plan was to get to that command post because you know what they have in the big command post in Washington, D.C., don't you? Yeah, I do not. What is that? Hot coffee. <laughs> and at three o'clock in the morning, the chief was looking for a hot cup of coffee. I'm not exaggerating or making fun, but it's true. The hot coach, man, oh, man, oh, man. That is, that is just pure silk, meaning... That guy knew his job so well. He was such a great boss. He was such a great leader. He smoothly transitioned to me into what I should have been doing all along. He knew I had the skills. He knew I had the capability. He knew I was prepared, trained. I could go on. And the last thing I wanted to do was to let him down. And sure. instead of making a deal out of it, we got through it perfectly. And then when, when I, you know, I can only remember one time in my career, I was a private back to engine 10 days, the battalion chief, 
was relieved by the deputy who struck another alarm and put that battalion chief and another company available, sent him home, which is was humiliation to the highest. <laughs> so yeah. again, you try to you try to pull that card last. No, I, I can imagine how embarrassing that would be. But again, I mean, as you're going through this explanation, I'll, I think, I mean, it all makes a, a ton of sense. But the one reoccurring theme that I'm hearing from you, though, is, you know, presence. The, the guys, uh, your your bosses, as you went through the ranks as, as a battalion chief, you had the, uh, the um, shift commander, all those things. You know, it sounds more and more of presence coaching reassurance and all those things because you know it's just like anything else and I, and I, I relate a lot of my leadership stuff that I've learned uh, both good and bad and very interesting situations of being being a dad right like when I had my kid my son's six years old and my thing is you know could I come in and absolutely hammer you about this or should I explain to you what, what's wrong why it's wrong and then move forward right because the last thing any adult wants to do is be berated so when it comes to kids, if you berate them, they're not going to listen to you because they're not going to understand it, right? But if you explain to him, this is exactly what's wrong. You know, here it is. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to explain it to you and I'm going to reassure you and we're going to move forward. We're going to put it behind us. But you do it again, then we're going to have a problem. There's going to be some sort of punishment. But that's, that's my personal experience. Um, but I've also had an experience where as a station officer in the fire department that I worked for, uh, we got put out for a unknown fire in, in a certain area. I'll put out, I'll just say a certain area because we're going to leave work separate. It was put out in a certain area. The vantage point I had when we pulled up in the engine, we're, first, we're the only engine, so just a local alarm, pulled up and I see a corner. It looks like a corner of a house. And all you see is fire everywhere, tons of black smoke, and the, the view's construed. I'm like, oh, well, that's a house. Hey, I got right on the radio and said, hey, the house on fire. I'm going to get you a better address. This is the intersection. Start the work of fire dispatch. You know, all these things. Get the units, you know, out, you know, I'll, you know, I'll take command, blah, 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 blah. We get turned around and the guy in the road waving us down, saying it's down a dirt path that we said, okay, we're going to check the area. We didn't pay attention to him. That guy was the guy that lived in this thing uh, that was burned. Not significantly, but he was burned. He was injured. We had no idea. And uh, after walking down there, it was a corner. It looked just like a house, but it was a mobile home. But you couldn't see it because there was so many things covering it. He had a bunch of stuff around it. It ended up being a mobile trailer, like a, like a, like a Winnebago almost. But in the angle it was parked, it, to me, it looked like a house. And, you know, it was a decision that I made. And I quickly held it to two and one and just said, you know, we just cancel everybody thinking nobody, you know, nobody will know the wiser, right? time chief comes up in the car he's like hey come on up here let's talk and i'm i'm waiting to get absolutely destroyed right and it was a simple hey look just wait a little bit next time try and get a bigger picture it's not a big deal you know what i mean so he coached me through that he walked me through it saying look people have made these mistakes before you're going to make mistakes but you made the decision you made the decision you had a plan you started your plan you reevaluated your plan and your plan changed he's like this is kind of you did a good job. Like you, 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 you identified the problem, you reevaluated and you gave whatever action you made the decision you needed and, and held the resources you wanted. He goes, it's not a big deal. He's like, it's no different than anything else. You could think an entire apartment's off and it's only a little bit of trash in a corner and you hold it with one and one and no one, no one knows the why. He goes, this is no different. He's like, so think, remember the good things that you did, which was X, Y, and Z. Remember the lesson of getting the bigger picture, the whole picture, and make your decision move forward. The biggest thing you need to understand is you made the decision 
And that's what we need. You need to make decisions. So to me, it was nice to hear those things. And, and not because I was looking for affirmation or accolades. It's just, you know, I think it's to the same thing that you said. He could have came in and I could have gotten absolutely dragged through the mud. And everybody could have made fun of it. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I didn't hear the end of it from the guys, I, you know, some of the guys and girls I worked with back then. This is almost six years ago, so it's not the same people I work with now. But the people, you know, peers and friends in the department that were listening found out what it was. And it was a relentless, um, you know, chop busting for me. But uh, from the people that were, you know, my supervisor, my, my battalion chief, it was, um, it was a very good interaction, I think. And I think that kind of talks to a little bit about, you know, kind of goes into what you're talking about being the cheerleader and the coach. Does that make sense to you? Oh boy, every bit of it does. And again, I, I think with that positive uh, of a connection, discussion, uh, learning point, learning opportunity, who became the best person to give a brief initial report and would have all the facts and figures prior to calling it in that department for the next couple of years? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. And you know, and it's funny, and just like everything else, leadership is a journey. It's not a destination, right? So you're going to continuously make mistakes. You're going to continuously evolve and you're going to learn. And my favorite part about of it is, is now teaching. So there's, there's a guy that I'm, we'll call him a peer. He's another officer. And there's been mistakes this person's made where they come to me. They're like, hey, X, Y, and Z happened. This was my interaction. And I get this big grin on my face and I get, and I love it because I get to say, I've been in your shoe this isn't going to be fun for a while. You made a mistake, but you know what the mistake is and it's okay because you're admitting it and we're going to fix it. And this is what you need to do X, Y, and Z. And this is what I did. And guess what, dude, it's going to happen again. You're going to screw up, but, and I'm a firm believer in this. If you go out and you screw up big, obviously nobody gets hurt or anything any worse. No one, you know, no citizens or firefighters or anyone else's, no one's injured. You're going to be incredibly embarrassed but you will never ever make that mistake again. And I think that's a good thing because it's going to humiliate you or uh, it's going to humble you, excuse me. You're going to learn what humility is. And then as I, the point that I'm making is now you get to teach someone else. And I think that's our entire job as leaders is you got to coach lead or coach. You got to teach them and you got to push them to the next level. And what a better way to help people get better, evolve to that new level, evolve into their true potential than to teach them through experience, teach them through real world examples, and then remind them that, you know, hey, look, you're not the only one that's made this mistake. I've made this mistake. That guy's made this mistake. You know, you talk to any really good fire service leaders and ask them, hey, what was your most embarrassing moment on a fire? You're going to hear some really crazy stories and you're going to even sit there and, some and sometimes think, you know what, maybe what I did isn't too bad. And, and I think it's all a matter of perspective. And, and you know, that was the whole point of what I was saying about leadership being a journey, not a destination is it's going to continuously evolve. It's going to continuously uh, develop as you move forward. You're going to learn a lot of lessons. You're going to change directions. You could change leadership styles and you could ultimately, um, you know, really apply what you're learning as you go. And, and, you know, I think that no matter what your background is and no matter your experiences, as long as you learn from it and you're better for it, you know, I think it's, it's going to work out. And as long as you're teachable, you got to be teachable and you got to care, um, you know, and, and I know that was very long winded. No, well, um, I, think, I think you're right on track. And I would just say two things. And 
one of the items to, to respond to that you mentioned, and that is pass it on. <laughs> Remember when you were in the jam and uh, boy, somebody now reports to you that probably could have done something better, uh, given it wasn't done malice, given that it wasn't repeated, given that it wasn't like pure stupidity. Um, sure. Obviously, give him that same courtesy. And secondly, how did you feel about that battalion chief? Uh, pretty good boss, huh? No, it was it was good. No, it really was. And, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because there's been interactions where it was really, really good like that. And then actions where that person dropped the hammer. But the nice part of the biggest part about it was when that hammer got dropped, I knew I deserved it. Well, you know, I, you know I think what I, mean? what I wanted to point out, though, and it goes exactly with what you're saying, is you really don't want to let a good boss down. No. You, you want to be in a position to make them smile as much as you can. And certainly, if we're human, we're going to make mistakes. Even Vince Lombardi pointed that out. Uh, you do know that he was a Washington Redskins football coach, correct? I did not know that. I've only, yeah, I've I've only known me, him. You're, you're I know, killing I'm me. sorry. You're killing me. You're killing I'm a Ravens me. guy. I'm a Ravens guy. I'm sorry. All right. Well, everybody associates him with the Packers and, and God bless him. But uh, when he got sent away from the Packers, he came to my town uh, in 1969. He was our head coach. Unfortunately, he got a two year uh, uh, extension. And then the next year, September 3rd of, of uh, 1970, he died. But he certainly changed the whole culture of the Washington Redskins. And for that, I'll be forever in his debt. But he points out that perfection is not attainable. But if we chase perfection, we might just end up on pretty good performance. Uh, obviously, he's speaking to the football field and the same in the fire department. Uh, and again, you don't want to let that good boss down. So I, I think, honestly, you, you've knocked it out of the park. You're, you're exactly right. Yeah, and, and just like your uh, – it looks like rule number six in your book says consistent performance. Now, consistent performance – I'm going to, I want you to elaborate on. on can I, can I just back up for a second? I'm busted. Sure. I'll tell you a quick story. No, help. No, help. When I was a private in Washington, DC, I also volunteered in one of the communities, not too terribly far away. And, and one night I was sleeping at the firehouse. I had to get up the next day. And before sunrise, a box alarm assignment came out for an apartment project. And one of my friends worked at engine 25 and he was a volunteer number two level chief. And the guy I'm driving and the guy that's riding next to me was the volunteer chief in the company I was at. The guy that, that uh, is, is the chief at another station, he was at engine 25. The guy sitting next to me was at engine 12. And when we went on this apartment fire, we were third or fourth due and I'm going through the gears and doing the best I can and pedaling as hard as I can and everyone got put in service. Mm -hmm. So when we came back and, and crossed over a, a major intersection and, you know, it takes time to get to that intersection, even with your lights on, sure. um, the number one chief in that other station called in and asked for a second alarm. The, the first chief had put everyone in service and uh -huh. they asked for a second alarm and, and quite frankly, rushed in, took a look at what appeared to be a small kitchen fire the kitchen fire had gotten up in the cabinets. The cabinets were in the basement. It ran through the roof. And before it was done, it went to a fourth alarm. So not to uh, minimize the fact that you had called for help and maybe another minute could have changed that, I would, I would have looked you in the eye and said, I'd rather have you do that than to embarrass the department and put us in a liability position and 
send everybody home when there was a pretty good work and fire inside of that building. And, you know, it was kind of interesting listening to it because the communication center is trying to get straight as to what the address is. And it almost got to be an argument. Those units have been in service, been put in service, Chief. Negative, negative. I've got fire showing through the roof. It was, oh, it was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's actually kind of interesting because I'm, I mean, there's probably examples as, you know, as, as long as the day is. As long yes, as the sir. day is. There, long, you're right. You know how I'm trying to say that. Um, you know, there's, there's been a, there was an interesting one that I had absolutely nothing to do with. And, and the, the people and department and area shall remain nameless. Um, but there was a situation where there was a smoke on the third floor of a three floor apartment building and uh, they couldn't find the source. They thought it was an AC unit with very, very good evidence and reason. And uh, they went back a few hours later with fire through the roof because it was on the uh, basement level, fire, small fire in the kitchen the homeowner put out, um, there the apartment tenant put out. And when the and this is where why it's not the fire department's fault was that tenant told them you know hey there's nothing down here I live in I live down there and there's nothing down there well the guy lied you, you know what I mean you so, you get the idea and and again yeah um, paying attention and having the right help at the right place at the right time sure, and not sure. rushing through it you're exactly right yeah and you know there's sometimes and that's the point that I'm going to make is sometimes you know things are going to be out of your control you can do your best to make the absolute best decision. And, you know, it, it, everything's absolute context. And, you know, that's why I've always despised Monday morning quarterbacking, armchair quarterbacking, whatever you want to call it, because, you know, you don't have the whole picture, you know what I mean? And people sometimes I think are quick to pass judgment on people that in its context, listening to the radio, why did they do that? That doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. But if you're the one physically there in your eyes and you're, or you're there, you know, um, and you're the, in their shoes, you know, you have to make the decision with what you can see. You have to make your decision. And this is the hard part that people don't understand is the heat of the moment's a real thing, right? So good officers are able to control themselves and take a breath and, and get a good picture. However, it is physically impossible, I think, to get absolutely all the information you need immediately. It's not possible. You do, you use the best context you have and make the decision that you can and sometimes you, you make the right decision. Sometimes you may not. But I think ultimately, and this goes way, way back to about 10 minutes ago of knowing if I know, I know you wanted me to call you Rube, but if Chief Rubin has expectations of me and I've seen, he's been present and I know without a shadow of a doubt, I'm going to make my decision and he's going to support me. If I have a reason, I make a good decision with facts, even if it turns out bad. I understand his expectations and, and he's present in the moment. He's, he's there and he, he, he has made me very clear to, and under, I understand very clearly, excuse me, very clearly his expectations of me and I'm within those parameters. I'm not going to be afraid to make decisions. And, and I think empowerment comes from those things, from being present in the moment. Empowerment comes from the coaching style that you talked about. And, and you know, and that's why I kind of wanted to, what, where I was going with the consistent performance part is, Consistent performance, which is rule six out of your book, um, you can't get too consistent without – or consistency comes from learning and um, mastering a skill and craft, and then you consistently perform properly, right? Just like any sports, if you think about it, when it's game time, they don't just do nothing all day and then show up and play games. No, they don't. 
baseball, you're there four or five hours before the game starts. You're doing practices. You're doing batting practices, fielding practices, positional things. And then it's accumulation of all those things. So what I'm getting at is consistent performance is something that you brought up. But how do you foster that consistency when it comes to leadership to empower people to be consistent and to be able to perform at that level? I'm glad you asked. Um, in the book and in my presentation, I talk about the McDonald's model has in the McDonald's restaurant. Now, let me tell you, it's not Ruth Chris's. It's not the, the very best food you're going to eat. But would you agree with me that it's pretty consistent? Yes, 100% agree. Um, you know, uh, probably what you're going to order as you're pulling into the parking lot. You probably have a pretty good idea how that restaurant's laid out, whether it's in your hometown or 100 miles away. You probably have a pretty good idea what the price is, how long it's going to take, what it's going to taste like. Um, and, and I could go on. So McDonald's has become probably the, the number one of the top 100, Fortune 100 companies in America, or at least they're pretty close. So they've done something right. And in doing a little bit of study, and I, I think all of their rules apply to us, and that is, first of all, the McDonald's brothers, before Ray Kroc stepped in, they had a pretty clear vision. That vision became the plan. To support the plan, we need policies, procedures, SOPs, guidelines, protocols, whichever you'd like to call them. Once that part is complete, we've got to start training. Um, when we talk about SOP and policy type training, we really do a good job as a nation with initial training on SOPs, SOGs, protocols, et cetera. Where we fall down, in my opinion, is that ongoing training capability. Um, what I always try to insist upon is that we would be training on one or two procedures per month, uh, every month, and eventually you'd get through the entire book. But if you don't train on them on an ongoing basis, most folks, if you ask, when did you last pull out a procedure book? It was either because somebody was in trouble and they were getting written up, or I was studying for promotion. Don't know whether you've experienced that, but I think that's the American fire experience. <laughs> Next step is to implement the plan. Then we have to supervise and enforce the plan. Supervising is easy. Hopefully things go well. Every once in a while when people would get out of line, you know, you got to show up for work on time. So says the McDonald's manager. Then it comes reward, retrain, and discipline. Uh, obvious reward is straightforward. Retrain when necessary. Discipline when it occurs. Evaluate the plan. Revise the plan. And then McDonald's says, start all over again. And I think those eight steps, if you will, of consistent uh, or designing a consistent performance plan works well for them and works pretty good for us as well. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I know that was a lot of stuff to cover. So let me put that into a much more palatable or understandable way. Sure. One thing that we did in Atlanta first and then in Washington, D.C. second was design what that first initial alarm response would look like. And we did it in a way that built it into a checklist format. Um, essentially, first in engine lays a supply line to the front of the building leaves the front open for the ladder truck, advances, in our case, an inch and a half hose line to the fire area, searching along the way, ensures that they have proper water supply, catches any fire department connection. You, you sort of get the idea, and I could keep reading down the page. 
But all of those checklist items are what's expected out of that first in engine company. And then the next page in the book is what the second engine does, et cetera. And I think by having those types of checklists uh, in this, we called it a, a, a tactical uh, a job aid. I'm, I'm looking at it. I don't want to go through the pages because, again, I know that when you rattle off a lot of information, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, to, to the listeners. But it, was a, it is a, a really important and really powerful document. One thing that I try to do and I would recommend for all good leaders is to read, read, read the checklist manifesto. And I'm sorry, I cannot pronounce the doctor's name that put it together. It has nothing to do with the fire department. This is a book that's probably about 10 or $12. It's worth about a million dollars. And what it describes is how he changed the uh, operating room uh, uh, problems and, and they became successes by using checklists, by making certain that the surgeon and all the folks there wash their hands properly. Uh, when you see the, the, the television uh, folks do it, um, you know, nowadays it's pretty standard. Back when this book was written, it wasn't. Uh, counting for every lap sponge that goes to uh, sop up blood when they're working on, a, on a, an abdomen cavity as a, for instance, and the book just goes on and on and on. But he pretty much ends up by saying, if it's important, and believe this or not, Mike, especially if it's important and it's simple, have a checklist. And that's what we try to do both in Atlanta and in Washington, D.C. And I, I got to give credit to the airline industries because they have what's called a quick reference book. And the quick reference book, I can tell you about a 737-200 series only because I've had a chance to train to learn a little bit, again, in the leadership skill when I was in Atlanta with Delta. And they have 88 configurations of failure. And when something goes wrong on that aircraft, one of the very first things that gets pulled out is that quick reference guidebook. And that guidebook then takes them through a step-by-step -step process, how to fix that problem. And, you know, when I'm sitting back in 5C in that plane, I'm thankful they got the checklist. I'm thankful that they got the quick action handbook. Um, it, it's a very structured process. And when you compare what we do to what they do, you know, lives are in our hands as well. Yeah, I know. I know that uh, was very eloquently put. Have you seen the movie Sully? I think that's what it's called. Sully. Oh my God. That's, that's my, that's my theme song. I've only seen it about five or six times. And if you pay close attention, uh, as they realize that the bird strike has happened, mm -hmm. the first officer is grabbing the book that I'm speaking about. Is that what? Okay. And in, and in fact, it, it's uh, it, it's the same company. I'm I'm looking at the U.S. Airlines, the one that they actually gave me when I was in Atlanta, and mm -hmm. it's uh, it, it's it's just critically important. And and of course, bird strikes are in those configurations of failure. So that was, but that's the book that you're referencing is the one that he pulled out and they started flipping through and the one they identified as, you know, it's never been, it's, there's no checklist for it because it's never happened before. Kind of that's um, the book that you're talking about. Um, you know, the root problem, of course, was bird strikes and there's plenty of bird strikes. Uh, I, I think what the, the uniqueness was is as a rule, bird strikes do not shut down both engines. That, <laughs> I, I think that was the unique part. But they did, they did reference, they did take a look at what the birds strike when they had time. And of course, um, as you will see in the movie, and it sounds like you've seen it a few times as well, yeah. they had no capability to get to Teterboro or back to uh, LaGuardia. 
Um, and, and, you know, what they took out was all the time that it took, not all the time, it was like 34 seconds to determine what the hell had just happened. Sorry, that's the only time I'm going to use a curse word. What the hell just happened and uh, how can we react to it? Uh, and then finally realize, oh, my God, we, we've just been pollinated by uh, uh, the, the many birds, 30 or 40 birds were, were scattered all over that plane. So uh, and they, they were Canadian goose, by the way, which was another uh, big deal because that was a, such a large bird. It shut down both engines, which even the NTSB said that was impossible. After the fact, they had to finally recover the engine to realize that, that uh, uh, Sully Sullenberger was not fibbing. He was telling the truth. So, sure. So, I mean, that kind of ties into everything that I, the big point that I wanted to make was, you know, as officers and leaders, you have to make decisions with partial information and your decisions can and will affect lives forever. Right. So is it a, I mean, is it a, a stretch to say that, you know, a house fire you go on um, can dramatically affect everyone's, everyone involved it dramatically, yeah, excuse me, dramatically affect their life for the rest of their life. Yes. The thing is, sometimes things happen and you need to make a decision. And I think leaders that are educated, empowered, and most of all supported, trained, and have a path to the next level and a path of success, I think will ultimately be consistent. That's kind of why I brought up consistency is, you know, you only have, I believe, I think the Marines call it the 80% solution. You know, you only have eight, you have to make a decision with 80% of the information. You're not going to always have the facts. So a good plan violently executed now is better than a great plan later. That's just the way it's going to be. You, you don't, you're not going to have time to do those things because lives are at stake. Property is at stake and you need to get in there. You need to get your job done. And, you know, to touch on McDonald's just a little bit as well is you talked about uh, predict predictability. You know what you're getting yourself into consistency um, standards and all those things that led them to feeding 1% of the world's population. So ultimately it's obviously customer service driven, right? Cause you're going to provide a service. The fire department's not that far off or any public safety really is not that far off. It's just, we're not feeding people food. We're protecting life property and the environment and, you know, doing life safety stuff. Without a doubt, you're, you're right on track um, now, so that uh, I want the, the, the listeners to ensure or to understand that I'm in line with what you're saying, not just agreeing. When you look at the uh, guidelines, the job aids, the tactical uh, job aids that DC produced throughout, it describes the fact that if the conditions weren't, change the plan. Um, the, the easiest one to be able to share is the two in and two out that's part of the uh, 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 breathing apparatus uh, procedure. Let me get the right exact right title, respiratory protection law. Mm -hmm. And what it says is if you have an imminent rescue, the two out can be suspended. But it also points out again that it's got to be imminent. You've got to have direct firsthand knowledge. You got to see a person, um, that sort of thing, rather than say every time you go on a call, you don't have to have the two out. So again, there's latitude. There needs to be latitude. I think the Marines said it best. You're going to have to go to work without having all the information. It would be incredible to think that you could have 80% of the information because you typically don't have that much, but I get their point. Uh, sure. And again, what the, what the tactical job aid does for us, uh, sends the first engine to the front, second to the rear, et cetera, is it really works pretty hard 
to limit the amount of freelancing or get it close to zero. I can tell you growing up as a, as a um, young firefighter, uh, you would do anything to uh, sneak in ahead of the next company, uh, freelance, do anything that you could to get as close and as fast and as near the fire as you possibly could. And it didn't really fit into the overall plan. And at the time, who cared? You know, the fire went out. Sure. That has changed dramatically over the years. And again, when we talk about accountability, that's another big issue on the fire ground. It still continues to be a big issue uh, where we don't do as good as we should in as a generalized overhead statement for our nation. Sure. And, you know, I think there's something to be said about overly aggressive uh, operations and people and companies. I think as an officer, I would ra much rather people be incredibly aggressive and I have to tone them down and pull the reins back and say, hey, let's, you know, hold on a minute than it is to have to force someone to want to go and do things. Um, I, I agree think, with that emphatically. But and again, there's a there's a way to do that. And again, the, the, the uh, clutch, if you will, as you already pointed out, needs to be that company officer, that battalion officer, that safety officer, whomever it might be. And that doesn't need to be, and that doesn't, should not be misconstrued with not being operationally disciplined either, right? If you have a job or you you have an assignment, whether you want to do it or not, whether you like it, it doesn't matter. You need to take every situation and be the best that you can be. So if you, you know, you're on a ladder truck and you're outside vent and you're not going in because the fire may not warrant it because it's just a room off and your job is to throw ladders, vent the roof, whatever, you should be doing that 1000% like your life depended on. And then if you're writ, you do writ 100% as if your life depended on it because, you know, one day it could. Um, but, you know, I, I think you need to take every day, one day at a time, one call at a time, one emergency at a time where you give everything a thousand percent, whether you like to do the job or not. So I think operational discipline is, is key. I, I think, um, you know, as you said, I think the company officer needs to be the backbone and uh, ensure that, you know, the guys, guys and girls are doing their jobs. But, you know, I mean, you obviously have to get out of the way and let them do it. But, um, yeah, I kind of lost my train of thought on that one. Oh, well, in Chief Bernasini's words, I'm going to throw you a rope here and, and rest his soul. Um, <laughs> what an incredible person. But he would say every single fire company must have a designated adult. <laughs> That's a good one. And, and laugh that. if you will, but that's you, buddy. That's the sure. company officer. Sure. That's the person, the, the lady or gentleman riding the right front seat. And, you know, um, I, I think you said it perfectly, having to pull the reins back. Um, that's so much better than saying, hey, please follow me. Come along. It's not that hot in here. So kudos. But by the same token, there's just times when you have to pull the reins back. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody signed up to get killed for no good reason. Uh, and, and boy, I could spend the rest of the afternoon talking to you about the situations that were no good reasons, but we uh, killed incredibly capable, wonderful, talented young people, mostly young people, uh, unnecessarily. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's definitely very unfortunate. And, you know, it, I think it ultimately comes down to, I guess, the example that you set, you know, I mean, I think if you set, or not example, excuse me, the tempo. When you set the tempo to be high performing, accountable, and proficient, you're going to be successful. And, and, you know, I think I don't want to say I hate saying that firefighting is an inherently dangerous job. And, you know, you need people need to kind of accept that. But 
I mean, people need to, but just because it's incredibly dangerous, we're going to do very dangerous things. We still have an oath to uphold to protect life, property, environment, right? In that order. So life is ultimately the number one thing. So there's going to come points where you're going to have to do dangerous things. That's the whole point of why we're here. It's a dangerous environment. That's why we're doing it. That's why we're trained so highly. Hopefully people are training and staying at that high level in their, in their firehouses and in the field and, and all that. But I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, it's very, very dangerous, but that's not an excuse to not have proper discipline and proper, um, as you said, the, be, be the adult. And, and I, maybe, you know, you, you have to, you have to be the adult sometimes, unfortunately make the, uh, actually that's where I wanted to go. And I apologize is the unpopular decision. There's going to be decisions you're going to have to make that the guys and the girls that you work with aren't going to like, but that's your job. And, you know, whether it means, Hey, we're going to have, we can't make these steps or we're going to make these steps, whatever it is. I mean, you're going to have to ultimately make that decision and that in itself is, is, is difficult. Um, but I think that comes with what we've been talking about a little bit uh, here and there of, of the consistent performance communication and the last point I want to get into is flawlessly executing the basics. It now, all comes before together. Before you read that last one, though, if you're looking for affirmation all of the time and you're not asking uh, to either slow down or speed up, if you're not giving real clear advice, maybe what you ought to do is leave the fire department and go work for good humor. Everybody, <laughs> yes. loves, everybody loves the ice cream man. Sure. You know, maybe they get a little uh, uh, rough with him if it's uh, too expensive, but short of that, they're in love and there's going to be times you're going to have to tell people things yep. that they do not want to hear, you know, get a, get a, get a sign release of this automobile accident so we can protect. Well, if you do a sign release, I've got five. Yeah. Just get it done, please. So yep. ultimately somebody has got to fill that, that breach, fill that void. So you're right. Uh, and then, then go on with the last comment you wanted to make. Uh, and then, you know, it's actually funny before we go any further, <laughs> Frank Escuso in his book says eat the ugly frog first. Because if you start out by eating the ugly frog first, everything else should be a please. Just yeah. it, it popped in my head as you talked about. It, it was kind of an interesting um, yeah. uh, analogy. So, but flawlessly executing the basics. A brilliance in the basics will always prevail to success, in my opinion. You know, I mean, that's a very broad stroke of the brush. But I feel like regardless of what you're doing, where we're going, all of that, if you are sharp in the basics, you will always fall back on success or maybe no you know what let me take that back if you falsely execute the basics um it's going to lead you to be more successful um you know i think as you said in atlanta lay out pull a hand line you know now we're doing 360s we're doing size ups of the rear we're doing basement access whether basements involved in fire or not all because we were killing people with basement fires and operating on top of basement fires that were not were not checked and they had the ability to continue to burn out of control i think san francisco had a basement fire they were working over top of trying to get into it the windows failed in the basement through no one's fault it's just the way the fire behaved and what the fire did and it killed two guys up on the first floor um you know brilliance in the basics and laying out pulling a hand line doing your 360 doing those basic things as a firefighter regardless of what level you're at if you fall back to the basics, I think it's going to set you up with the best, your best uh, chances of success for the entire incident. I, I, I agree. And, and, you know, I, I did pull up the um, slide that has the, the quote by our Redskins head coach, Vince Lombardi. Perfection is not attainable. But if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. 
And I think that's exactly what you're saying. I, I think the, the, the great coach put it into to pretty clear words. And I think if you can't do the basics in football, as an example, you're going to fail. If you can't do the basics in our business, you're going to fail. The dichotomy, one of the, one of the most disparaging items to me is the difference between a paramedic's responsibility and a firefighter's responsibility. Do you happen to be a paramedic? I am a medic, yes. With that, the flawless execution of the basics of that job is incredibly, incredibly important to every patient you touch. Is that a fair statement? I agree. You, you need to be able to start an IV or know the size of the appropriate airway or be able to do whatever therapy that, that's in your protocol flawlessly. Uh, again, am I getting that right? No, I agree. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm just an EMT, and I know there's <laughs> protocols for EMTs, but sure. it falls, falls short of what you do with the magic of, of a paramedic. And what I'd like to see, that dichotomy that I speak to, is that maybe, just maybe, we should have the same checklist, the same recertification, the same national registry that is in front of a paramedic or even an EMT. Usually when you get one firefighter or certificate for whatever level, firefighter one, two, officer one, et cetera, um, it's good for life. And that, that has always been a mystery to me as to how you can have that attainment and never, ever be required. I know most people, I hope, do, but we be required to improve that skill set. Do you think that comes down to us as leaders and officers and, and um, people in uh, impactful positions where, yeah, you're licensed and that's fine, but don't you think, do you think that's up to us to hold people accountable to stay, to set the standard and hold them accountable to that standard? You know, again, you're going to say, can I make up my mind? Yes and no. <laughs> Certainly yes in that you really need to be uh, moving your members forward and, and, and uh, providing incentives, enticing them, getting them to where they need to be. The reality of it is the paramedic has to do those things because it's grounded in the law, state law. That same should occur for the firefighters. Now, I, I know most people have either clicked off this podcast when I said that or they're telling their boss and they're going to send me hate messages. But, you know, we're not regulated the way, in my opinion, that we should be. And certainly the fireside is not regulated uniformly across the United States, although we do the same job. It really has been confusing to me. So I, I would say, uh, you know, micro and macro in the in the micro sense, Keep encouraging your people, give them opportunities, provide the appropriate training. You know, uh, back to my days in Washington, every company would have a chance to come to the training academy twice. Uh, again, four platoon system. Uh, I think there was 58 different companies, of course, the ladders, engines, rescues, et cetera. Um, so they only got down there twice. But when they did, almost always, it included a really good dose of the basics, trying to keep those skills up multi-company operations following that guideline that I mentioned. But by the same token, the paramedics don't give a, get a choice. They have to make a certain amount of sticks, a certain amount of airway uh, starts. They've got to get reviewed. Uh, the medical director has got to sign off and they've got to have a certain amount of hours in various categories, unless that's changed, and I don't think it has. So there, there's a big difference. And again, it's driven by law. And what does law have to do with it? Well. If that was a law that firefighters had to have that same level of 
attainment and, and constant improvement, I think we would be forcing governments to pay the money necessary to provide the training. Police get an awful lot of training that, that uh, is required by law, where in fact, we don't really get much funding to support our training programs generally. No, that's, that's, I mean, that's a very good way to look at it, I think. And it all comes back down to accountability. And I think the style in which I think people would execute that would be different knowing that they're accountable to a state or federal or local higher authority local law. Higher, higher authority. authority. Yeah. No, absolutely. Again, it, it's absolutely. a higher governmental authority because usually the, the government's the one that's providing the financial resource to get the training. I, I don't know that many fire chiefs would say, give me less. I, I want to do less. Yeah. I don't want to do training. Most are begging for more, more, more. And it's very difficult to get it. Sure. So what do you think, what do you think your leadership style is? And uh, can you think of any impactful moments or uh, when your leadership style was, your leadership, excuse me, was uh, tested, when you've been tested as a leader? Well, you know, um, kind of two different questions. To me, the, the basic leadership style that I possess happens to be autocratic, but I have to know that and I have to know when to be an autocrat. I have to know when to be uh, 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 laissez-faire. I have to know when to implement the democratic process and understand the difference. So that's a little different than when I was really put to the test. One of the, the most challenging situations uh, I'd love to share with you, if it's appropriate, is about a line of duty death that I faced. Yeah, I no, I'm, I'm all about it. I, uh, I yeah, let's go ahead. Um, it was Thanksgiving Day and it was in 2006. I was about maybe, I don't know, a couple, three hours outside of Atlanta when I got a phone call that one of our members had been critically injured in a house fire in the Ivy City section of Atlanta and that he was in the Grady Hospital in, in terrible condition and to head that way. So remembered we talked about showing up and lead from the front. So even though I was with my family, even though it was Thanksgiving, even though it was dinner time, I, I knew I needed to get up and, and leave the table and start heading back to Atlanta. And when I got there, Mike, the, the members were, were there in force. It was probably 150 Atlanta members waiting outside the hospital. And of course, I, you know, uh, hugged each one and talked to each one. And, excuse me, and ultimately, one of the, the members, maybe one of the assistant chiefs knew where, he, where my guy was, uh, um, uh, Michael uh, Solomon, um, Stephen Solomon, his middle name was Michael. And I went up to the third floor and, and visited his room. Again, he was unconscious, unresponsive, severe burns, and met his wife, talked to her, talked to his family members that were there. And in the process, the doctor, uh, Dr. Ingram was his name, asked me to step outside. And he pretty much said, Chief, you got two major responsibilities here. And I thought, okay, how can I help? And he said, well, first responsibility is you need to be that cheerleader. You need to try to do anything you can to lighten the spirit, to help this family, um, and, and, you know, for your fire department as well. And I agreed. And he said, the next thing you got to do is you got to get everybody prepared for, for Stephen to die. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, this isn't good. And he said, you know, I've been a burn surgeon for a very long time. This guy was so interesting. I really enjoyed learning from him and, and, and sharing a lot of time with him. Uh, I would go to the hospital every evening you know, I did my regular work because I couldn't get too far behind in a system like that. But from about 2.30 on uh, till it was about 7 in the morning, I, I sat there 
I wanted to make sure someone was on, on watch, if you will, with him around the clock. And uh, along the way, the doc said that, that he had never seen an airway that had been burned uh, to that degree and that it was only a matter of time, but, but that he was going to pass and that I had to, to get the, the, the house in order, um, whatever the payouts would be, start the uh, uh, public safety officer death benefit uh, with the National Fallen Firefighters. They were incredibly, incredibly helpful, to say the least. Well, as I knew the end was going to be near with him, something kind of interesting happened. Uh, he, he had one leg severely burned and one was not. And the leg that was severely burned continued to profuse. And I still don't understand this. And, and Mike, the leg that was unharmed, um, it, it stopped profusing. It was cold. It was hard. And about the third day, it took him four days, maybe five, I guess, to pass away. The doc said, pray that, that he passes today. And I thought, you know, what in the world, doc? And he says, if not, I'm going to have to amputate his right leg. And what we're going to be doing is taking him apart a piece at a time. Gangrene's going to set in and that will kill him for sure. And I just don't want the family to go through that. So if he passed away today, that would be good. And I still don't understand why that leg, I thought maybe the good one would perfuse and the bad one wouldn't. But again, the, the mystery and magic of medicine, I guess. Yeah. No, I don't know. So, yeah. so as that all uh, transpired and had to get ready for the funeral and, and doing things that I knew that was going to confront us and would be in front of us, um, I, I realized that I also had some other responsibilities. And that is to make sure that our members understood what happened. So I uh, called the state training director, David Wall, uh, at the Georgia Public Safety Training Center. I had him meet me on Monday. Stephen died on Sunday. Uh, Thanksgiving, of course, was on Thursday. And what I set them in motion to do was to pick a committee. It had two or three firefighters, two or three union members. It had a pastor from the local. It had a police officer and start the local investigation immediately. Then I had training give me two captains that would work on a project until it was finished. And they put together about a two hour training program about what happened, about how it was handled, uh, about what occurred. The audio tapes were used. There were many, many pictures. Uh, and when that finished, that training was actually done on site at the house in Ivy City. And when that was done, the members in the class then actually physically walked in the steps that Stephen walked in and where he moved the hose line from point A to point B, uh, where he stood up uh, when his equipment got dislodged, uh, where he was found, how they found him. He was uh, located. They, they could hardly even get a mayday out. He was found within 30 seconds and removed and, and where his partner was. And again, they got to see all of that. With that said, there was a lot of resistance to that. And I mean, a lot of resistance at first. People thought I was crazy. Has it unfolded? And every single operational member of Atlanta Fire Department in 2006 went through this course. There was just great accolades. And I'm proud to say today that the Georgia Smoke Divers, uh, when they run that course, the Stephen uh, Solomon uh, case study uh, is presented. It's still alive today. So he didn't die in vain. There are many firefighters that uh, lives have been saved that we'll never know that understood exactly what happened and why and how to prevent that. And uh, couple that with 
getting ready to do what was the most difficult duty that, that I had. And that was to uh, lay him to rest and then support his family and, and do all the follow-up things that was necessary. So I think that when anyone asks me what my most difficult leadership challenge was, it was that, um, recognizing that although my family's critically important, I, I needed to go. Um, thank goodness I had a Corvette because I'm pretty sure that, that I went above the speed limit. Um, couple that with meeting the family. Um, you know, Atlanta was uh, not only, but was a thousand people when I was there, not as big as DC, but still plenty big. So I didn't get to know uh, Stephen Solomon, uh, but I got to know his family. I got to know his children. Uh, couple that with the uh, firefighters that really didn't want to take a look at what had happened, didn't want to understand it. And I felt compelled that that just had to occur. So at each one of those steps, I, I thought it was uh, fraught with the potential of, of difficulty um, that could uh, make or break me, so to speak. But I knew exactly what I felt like I had to do. We did it and, and we moved on. And again, I, I don't think I would have handled it any other way, but that was probably my biggest leadership challenge to date. You know, I think line of duty desk will always be the, at the top of if not the top of the most difficult situation for leaders to face anytime someone that you know is is under your uh command that you know dies i, I don't think there's ever another a more difficult situation for somebody to kind of go through and and you know i don't think i mean i don't know how it is how it was in 2006 but i know there's a lot of programs and things that kind of get people ready for the line of duty death and get ready or to prepare after the line of duty death but who is ever going to be prepared for that no one you, you but, can't be you can't you, be you can. I, I i would suggest please do take the classes i'm going to give another another accolade the national fallen firefighter foundation uh executive director chief uh uh, uh uh, Ron Sarnicky, amazing. The work they do is unbelievable. Uh, however, when it does happen, it's it's a difficult time for everybody. And there's so many emotions, so many raw emotions, and so many things that you have to do. But that's the day I think the leader has to step up if they're going to be a, a reasonably uh, uh, good leader. I hate using reasonably good, but a, a reasonably well-respected yeah. Yeah, respected leader, maybe. Well, ultimately, at the end of the day, at that point, it's no longer. Well, it's quite frankly, as a leader, it's never about you, right? It's never going to be about you. It's 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 about the people in which you you uh, you work with and the people that you serve, the people that you lead. And, and I think because I've never been in the shoes of a of someone um, in, in your shoes as far as being, you know, a leader that has dealt with a line of duty death. Um, I think the being present in the moment with sincere compassion. And doing what you can to do, be doing what you can do as a chief, I think is the most impactful thing because the family's never going to forget that. Ultimately, there are they are number one when it comes to these things. We are there for them. Um, you know that. I think that can go without being said. Um, but I think that being present in the moment, giving the support giving you know any help that you can do and all that i think is obviously the most important and it, and it circles right back into being present in the moment you know yeah yeah you can't predict these things you can't write a roadmap you can't um know everything and you can't have all the answers but just like any other situation or relationship sometimes being present and just listening and just being present to do what you need to do is what needs to be done 
You don't have to run in there and say, here I am. I have all the answers. No, that's not it. You, if you just being present, falling into place where you can, I think will ultimately lead to the, to doing the best that you can for that situation. Becomes a ministry unto itself. Becomes a ministry unto itself. Absolutely. And I don't think anyone's ever prepared for it, but I do think, um, you know, it, when that day, if that day, God forbid, ever comes, knock on wood, um, you know, I, being present is, is the best that you can do. And, and I think that's going to have the longest lasting effect. Um, yes, sir. For the family members, because ultimately that's what we're here for. So, you know, Stephen Mitchell Solomon, uh, you know, he, he passed away from a line of duty death. You know, may he continue to rest in peace um, and, and, you know, thoughts and prayers and, and good good vibes for his family as they're still continuing to work through all of those things, uh, you know. But he saved a lot of firefighters. I don't want to let that later. be lost. No, he saved I, a lot of firefighters post-mortem. And again, I agree. if you go to Georgia Smoke, to Di- Smoke Divers, you'll get that same two-hour presentation. Obviously, the building has been raised. It's gone. But every other aspect of it hasn't changed. And again, uh, you know, he didn't die in vain. And that was also, to me, an organizationally critically important. And for his family as well. I'm sure the, the not dying in vain, part, well, I know the not dying in vain part is very important to them. And he has a legacy now um, with what you guys have done. And, and you know, the, as you mentioned, the, the Georgia smoke divers um, have, the, have done uh, in his memory. So that others yes, sir. may may learn from uh, what happened. So I think this is a good point to uh, we'll, to stop. Uh, we're right over, right around that one hour mark. Um, you know, I, I, I said this a couple of times. I know you don't you wanted me to call you Rue, but Chief, I greatly greatly appreciate your time. Thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast today. It's 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 been a truly a, an honor and a pleasure. Um, where are some places people could get a hold of you? Do you know, do you have social media, anything like that? Where where can we find you if they want to, if they want to find you? Certainly the the um, social media would be at Chief Rubin, C H I F R U B I N. Um, and that's on Twitter. Let me apologize for using Chief, but my son is Dennis as well. And if mm-hmm. I use Dennis in anything, he'd get pretty upset meaning um, he doesn't want people sending him messages designed for me. So that's how we delineate in the social media world. The um, email is also pretty simple. Uh, Chief Ruben at me.com. Um, once again, he set all that up. He does not. If you do Dennis Ruben at me, it's going to go to my son, who's a police officer, and he gets pretty grumpy. Um, so that would be the, the two mechanisms. If you're looking for the book, uh, not trying to push it, but it's always available through fire engineering. Uh, you mentioned it. It's always about leadership. And then the, the other book that's still available is called DC Fire. Uh, pretty simple. Also, a lot of leadership lessons in that one as well. So thank you for the great opportunity. I, I think this was a, a valuable time spent. I think your mission is incredible. Uh, continue to train and, and provide opportunities uh, for firefighters uh, to learn and, and paramedics and EMTs, of course, to learn leadership skills and uh, for that to be focused within the uh, the area of, of what we do and our passion is. So thank you so much again, Mike. Thanks, Chief. I appreciate that. And, and I very I greatly appreciate your kind words. Um, so just hang out for a few minutes. And we're going to close the show out and um, just stand by. Uh, so guys, Thanks for listening to the Tip of the Spear Leadership Podcast. Uh, Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on your favorite podcast network. And make sure you hit that subscribe button and download. 
and leave us a review. Five stars are our favorite because it helps us grow and reach more people to grow our audience and push our mission. We're going to add links for Chief Ruben and his books and those things into the episode description. So stay tuned in the next, the next few weeks. We're going to have more episodes coming out. Keep an eye out for that. And uh, tip of the spear leadership, be present, be yourself, be unstoppable. Thanks, guys, and have a great day.